Hello and welcome to another edition of Thoughts from Player One, the podcast where we take an in-depth look at one story or narrative-focused game. As always, I'm Alex. And, and I'm Duncan. That's not true. That's a lie. It is a bold-faced, bona fide lie. Duncan is not here today. He called in sick. He said, I can't <laughs> come into work today. I'm just not feeling well. He's got the sniffles. So once again, we pulled in from the the, the depths of I don't know. I was going to say Tartarus, but that has some implications maybe where you come wow, from. I don't like not, uh, not cool. Not cool, bro. <laughs> Once again, we are joined by special guest Nick, who is here on our Bloodborne episode. I don't think I mentioned on our Bloodborne episode anywhere along the way that we're brothers. So that's maybe, I, I feel like hopefully it came across, but I did realize that after the fact it was never mentioned. I like that you put my name in quotes in the I did. podcast that was Duncan. title. Duncan edited that. <laughs> I was like, I'm pretty sure that's my name. I haven't looked at my birth certificate in a little while, but I'm pretty I, sure. Look, to be fair, it was it was also preceded by featuring, and the last time we had featuring as an episode title, it was preceded or followed by George Washington. So I don't <laughs> think you really kind of get quite the same levity that George Washington does. You know what? So, I I accept being on par with George Washington. That's fair. That's fair. Um, <laughs> so today we are here. Um, a little bit of a, a shorter episode is is what we're planning. I have said that off air literally before almost every single episode we've recorded, and I've never <laughs> been correct. But now that we're saying it on air, I'm hoping to put that energy into the world a little bit. Um, so we are here to talk about both Dark Souls 1 and Dark Souls 3, um, obviously both developed by FromSoft. Dark Souls 1 originally released um, September 11th, 2011, and Dark Souls 3 originally released on March 24th, 2016. Both of these you can pick up on Xbox, PlayStation, and PC. Dark Souls 1 actually on the Switch. I did not know that. Um, Which is wild. I can't like, I imagine can't... that's a good way to play it, but maybe? I, I don't want to be sitting in bed late at night trying to beat, you know, the Copra Demon or Bell Gargoyles, <laughs> but maybe that's just who I am. You know, I think that's that's pretty fair. I don't want that experience either. That's <laughs> a horrible thing to have to do before you go to bed. But, yeah. Um, that's where you can pick them up. Um, as, as mentioned in the previous episode, we're kind of burning through some FromSoft games. We did not include Dark Souls 2 on this list because we did not beat it. Um, we'll probably talk a little bit more about that uh, a little later. Also worth mentioning, we beat Dark Souls 3, uh, I don't know, nine months ago, and we beat Dark Souls 1 uh, four and a half years ago, something like that. <laughs> so we might be a little rusty on pieces here and there, but I think um, talking about Dark Souls 1 and 3 together gives a really interesting reflection of each other, and talking about them immediately after Bloodborne gives a really interesting kind of reflection on the Soulsborne franchise as a whole, um, which I think hopefully will lead to some some interesting conversation, and we will try not to have much overlap between the conversations we have in this episode and we had in our, our previous episode. But all that being said, before anything else, I wanted to, uh, to do what we normally do and get some general thoughts and feelings from both of us on Dark Souls 1 and Dark Souls 3, kind of where we landed on them, which one we may have preferred, if there was a, like a, a stark difference between them. Um, and then obviously, you know, bear in mind, it's been a long time <laughs> since we last played Dark Souls 1. Uh, yeah. But I, I think it's just it's good to get a baseline for, for where we are before we dive into a story summary, which I put in air quotes because, oh man, it's not going to be much. <laughs> and then maybe dive into a few more interesting questions. So do you want to do you want to lead us off with with your general thoughts on Dark Souls 1 and 3? Or sure. we can do just one at a time, whatever you prefer. Uh, why don't we do one at a time? So we played Dark Souls 1 
uh, in the heyday of the Obama administration. That's how long ago it was. Maybe not the heyday, the tail end. But uh, I was say, just... the last five months of the Obama administration. Look, time Famously has been the weird. Heyday. Okay, time has been weird for a long time. But it's been a while since we played Dark Souls One. But there was something special about it being the first entry into the Soulsborn. I don't want to say universe because there's not a whole lot of lore overlap between Dark Souls and Bloodborne, but there is a sort of vibe and feel that these games have. And Dark Souls 1 has a special place in my heart because it is the first one that I really got into. Um, I mentioned on the Bloodborne podcast that I played Bloodborne by myself when it originally came out, but it's not quite the same because I didn't do the really deep dive, you know, go explore every nook and cranny, try to make sure that I fight every boss that we did when we first played Dark Souls 1 together in 2016. And it was, you know, it was an experience. We went into it expecting it to be very difficult, but because we have this sort of fun commiseration mode that we made up where we're playing... Dark Souls together at the same time over Discord and talking about it, but we're not actively engaging in the multiplayer hooks that are built into the game. It's just we start at the same time, we progress at roughly the same speed, so you know we're banging our heads against the same bosses, we're dealing with the same sections of the world. Um, being able to share that experience, I think, really elevated the experience for me. And just for the game itself, I thought it was great. I liked the wide variety of different playstyles you could have, even if I only ever played with the Halberd and Shield. I never varied my build in Dark Souls 1. And I think, wasn't that your build too? Oh yeah, we both found the Halberd at about the same time and said, hey, this thing's fucking broken. Uh, And I thought for sure we were just, you know, wrong until I, you know, we beat the game and I hopped on the subreddit and people were like, man, the Halberd's fucking good. It's either the Halberd or the Zweihander. You don't have other options. You're beating the game with one of those two. Really? I didn't even know that. I just thought, you know, part of these games is the first weapon that you kind of latch onto is the one that carries you through to the end. That's how we play these games. I don't know that okay. that's <laughs> true okay. of everybody, but that is how we play these games. That is that is 100% correct. Yeah, um, and for Dark Souls 1, I think that there's kind of clearly a level of polish that sort of falls off at the midway point in the game up through up to and through on or on orlando it's really well polished and everything feels very intentional and authored but then you get to some of the side paths off on orlando and you know you go to the hell type area and you fight uh ceaseless discharge and that just feels maybe a little underbaked. Look, every every Souls game's got one. Every Souls game's got one boss that's just like, you could have done without this one. Yeah, but I think with original Dark Souls, it's not just one. I think it's like a third of the game that feels yeah. that way. That that might be fair. <laughs> that that might be fair. Actually, Ceaseless Discharge, I didn't think was that bad. Bed of Chaos was true. Bed of Chaos, trash. that's the one. Yeah, I, I yeah. got those confused. Uh, but th- To be fair, Ceaseless Discharge, not good. I don't yeah. know. That one's still yeah. bad. Yeah. So uh, how about you? What were your thoughts on that that aren't just exactly my thoughts since we played it side by side with the same build? Yeah, I mean, I would echo a lot of what you said there, weirdly enough. Um, I think 
couple of things I would add. One, if there, uh, if anybody plays these games, the bell gargoyles are unfair, and if you have to bang your head against them 40 times, that's not a problem. I've been there. I get it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> that shit's busted, and the game's bad up to that point. Um, but outside of that, I do think, generally speaking, I, I have a, a deep and abiding love for Dark Souls 1. Um, I don't I don't feel like I am as harsh on it on the second half as, as you are, and I think generally the community at, at large is, because, I mean, it is just a lot of backtracking, as, as I mm-hmm. think generally people don't love that. Um, yeah. But I think I just enjoyed being in that world so much that the backtracking didn't bother me um, okay. as much. Uh, and, and a lot of that is just the way the, the map is laid out, the interconnectedness of the world, which we'll talk about quite a bit. Um, but it's really, really, really difficult for me to um, disassociate how I feel about this game from the fact that it was the first one of these that I played, right? Like, yep. I put Dark Souls 1 in this category, and I'm like, this this game is amazing, and it's incredible, and I, I think it's one of my favorite games I've ever played, and I have a poster of the map in my house. It's like one <laughs> of the three pieces of art that I own, because I'm like, this fucking map is cool as hell, this world is cool as hell. But, like, if I'm actually sitting down and comparing it to any other of the <laughs> entire FromSoft games we've played, I think it's probably worse than all of them. Yeah. Um, but it's just, there's something about it that just clicks so incredibly well. And I think the um, the narrative arc they try to tell in this game is, like, obviously, the, the it, it's hard to talk about the narrative arc, and we'll talk about that later on. But I think the 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 narrative that exists within the world building that you are almost to a degree unintentionally a part of, I find really, really fascinating in Dark Souls 1 in a way that I did not feel the same about Dark Souls 3. Um, so I think part of that um, ties me in because it, you you feel, or at least I, in retrospect, I don't know if I did at the time, I felt the weight of my actions on the world a little bit. Uh, and I think that was, that was really cool and it felt really impactful. Uh, but again, it, it's so hard not to just be like, yeah, but it was cool. There were all those fake walls right? and I love that. I loved yeah. all the fake walls. And now I'm like, you know, recently beat Bloodborne in Dark Souls 3 and I'm like, I just don't ever want to see another fucking fake wall again. It's the <laughs> dumbest way to hide stuff. But I've, it all feels good in this one because I hadn't seen it before. Yep. Um, but I, I do love it. Um, in contrast to that, Dark Souls 3 is like, objectively better in most ways it <laughs> really is yeah yeah it's like not always not always because i think the world design in dark souls 3 is kind of genuinely uninspired um in a way that i don't feel that way about dark souls 1 but like the boss design is with the exception of like grave lord nito as cool if not cooler Mm-hmm. Um, most of the boss encounters are cool. The world just feels better to exist in. Like, moving feels better. Rolling feels better. Enemies feel a little more well-refined. And it, it just felt like they really did, like, cut their teeth and learned lessons uh, yeah. from Dark Souls 1 and Dark Souls 3. Um, but, boy, howdy, they just decided to do it again, huh? <laughs> we'll get to that in the story summary, but they were just like, yeah, the story in Dark Souls 1 was fine. What of that? Uh, and that was it. Well, the big three or four enemies that you fight in Dark Souls 3 are, for the most part, different from those in Dark Souls 1. Um, you know, the opening cinematic is not quite a shot-for-shot remake, but you can definitely tell that, oh yeah, this is another Dark Souls game. Yeah. Uh, but I, th- I think you're right that it does feel like Dark Souls 1 was them really birthing something special 
into the gaming universe, and neither Alex nor I have played Demon Souls, so maybe we're we could be saying the same thing about Demon Souls. We just yeah. don't have experience with it yet. Um, but Dark Souls Three, it feels like a significant refinement of that formula. Yeah, one hundred percent agree. Um. Well. If you have anything else to say, great. If not, I can jump into the story summary. Yeah, why don't you jump into that? Let's do that. Okay, so Dark Souls story summary. You play um, kind of a chosen or nameless undead. Um, you Much the same way with Bloodborne. You just choose everything about your character. Um, and you are trying to... In both of these games, you you exist in this world that is kind of dying and the, the last light of this fire is fading and you are trying to kind of link link these fires throughout the world to rekindle the the fire of you know the flame of the first fire right the kiln of the first flame whatever the fuck you want to call it uh, <laughs> because i don't remember because it's been four years um and that's the story of dark souls uh i think we got yeah. it pretty good there. You, yeah I mean, you, you meet a lot of characters along the way right you you are in this con this kind of constant cycle of of death and rebirth this in the same way that you are in every single FromSoft game, but I think in a way that feels more impactful in, in, in Dark Souls 1 and 3, it yeah. feels more baked into the world that you are, like, you know, going through this this cycle and dying and, and choosing to either accept or give up your humanity in both a kind of figurative sense and in a very mechanical sense. Mm -hmm. um, and you go through, you know, Dark Souls um, 1, it's kind of, again, there are these four lords guarding these, you know, these four different, like, paths forward. Um, I, I think they're technically you just need to get their souls. Um, they're just like the the great souls of these lords. Yeah. And you use them in Dark Souls One. You kind of get to um on Orlando, which is like the hall of the gods who have kind of left. Right, Gwyn, the Lord of Cinder, is is the one that left. Um, to to try and fix this problem. Um, and you know you don't really see him until spoilers. He's the last boss in the game. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and then you know when you kind of move forward from there you get this lord vessel that allows you to to absorb more of this energy it allows you to kind of progress with the story and and eventually you know fight through another series of difficult bosses until you get to the point where you can uh, choose to to link this first flame and then you kind of get a couple of choices in both of these games um you get a choice to either let the first flame die out which kind of is reminiscent of the idea that maybe like the age of humans and humanity and, and, and these gods and everything comes to an end and a new age of darkness envelops the world, or you relight the flame and kind of restart the cycle anew, keeping the, the age of, of like the current age alive, but kind of at what cost, I guess it would say mm -hmm. not, not necessarily that there is an, 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 you know, like a material cost, but rather that you are existing inside of the cycle of what feels like, you know, an, a, an endless suffering for all the people that live in there. Um, and then in Dark Souls 3, you also get the option to, like, do a secret ending where you essentially become the king of the world. <laughs> like, it's what I did, because it's the secret ending, so of course yeah, I did it, but it, it didn't, you know. Um, but the, the story of the, like, it, again, in Dark Souls 3 is just that again. Um, yep. The story of, of the world is mildly interesting but so much of the story of this world is in the world building it's in these characters it's in these item descriptions it's in this like brief snippets of dialogue you get where i don't feel like the story is necessarily about you as the chosen undead as much as you are kind of just a you know a, a character who exists so that you can 
you know, obviously you affect change on the world because you are going through, you are doing things that are changing world states and everything like that. But you are not the primary character, right? Like your impacts are very real, but you are just, you are anyone. You could have been anyone. You are just the person who exists to walk through the world and understand what is going on in it and understand where it is destined to go no matter what. Uh, and I think that's kind of, um, I don't know, I find that interesting in a retrospective sense. I really like it. Yeah. It's just in the moment, like, and this is all from soft games are like this, uh, at least all of them except for Sekiro that I've played, where it's like, man, what the fuck happened? Did anything interesting happen <laughs> in this game? And then you spend like 25 minutes on a wiki and you're like, this fucking rules. Everything about this is so cool, but there's just, it's next to impossible to absorb any of that while you're actually playing through the game. Yeah, yeah. And so much so much of these games is about exploring and being in the world that it almost seems necessary for the narrative thread to take a backseat to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I agree. Um I think they each have have powerful moments where you feel the effect of your existence in the world, right? You feel the effect of the existence of the chosen undead, right? Where, you know, um in Dark Souls 1 at some point in um and Firelink Shrine, after you complete the Anorlando quest and get the Lord Vessel, you know, one of, <clears throat> I don't I think it's only, uh, I, th I think it's only one character. I don't think it can be one of two at that point. Um, I'm looking up his name right now. Give me one second. Hold on. I'm going to remember it. I'm going to remember it. Looking it up it. in that mental list. Yeah. Looking I it up in that it. mental list that I don't have directly in front of me right now because I do remember everything from four years ago. It's yeah. not on this list. That's bullshit. <laughs> Um. Oh yeah, Frampt. That's that's why I forgot because. Oh it, yeah, the Loch Ness monster. Yeah. So there's a Loch Ness monster that kind of appears and starts guiding you through things. Um. You you, know, you can uh, also kill him and get a different one that appears. Um. And so you 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 do kind of feel that change in that moment when you've been on Orlando and kind of understood and embraced the quest and different parts of the world open up and characters start to react differently and you suddenly have a path forward. Um, there's also, you know, you don't have to do this, but you can, um, <clears throat> through, I think one of two or three different ways you can impact change on, on Orlando and kind of drop an illusion that's making it appear very godly, um, and, and basically acknowledge the fact that, hey, actually, on Orlando is also dead and dying. <laughs> like, that feels really impactful and cool, and there's, you know, a couple of story moments in Dark Souls 3 where, like, the world state changes a little bit that all feels really cool, but for the most part, yeah, you are just you are there to experience the world, um, and I, I don't know. I like I do I do really like it, but it just it feels a little bit lacking a lot of the time. Like I I wonder how if we would feel differently not having played Sekiro, because Sekiro I think is FromSoft really coming into their own in the actual art of storytelling. But it's such a different game, and you know we can save a lot of this discussion for when we actually talk about Sekiro, mm -hmm. but there is a defined protagonist who doesn't say a lot, but he is an actual character. Whereas yeah. in Dark Souls 1 and 3, you know, you define everything about your character from you know their size and gender to their past, and they really are just a vessel for the for the player to inhabit. Mm -hmm. I I do wonder that, but I don't remember feeling fulfilled by the story. Like, again, I don't, like, I, 
and and correct me if if you feel differently, but I know for a fact I did not ingest what happened in Dark Souls One until I went up. Like I just didn't. Yeah. I just didn't know it, right? So I don't think. Right. And we played Dark Souls One years before we played Sekiro, so it's not like my perception of it wasn't being warped, right? We had snippets based on character dialogue. We had snippets based on like world state changes and mm-hmm. and item descriptions, but we didn't have like. There was just nothing there for us to grab onto other than the idea of, oh, hey, this is a really cool place to exist in. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I think maybe it's been colored in retrospect a little bit by playing Sekiro, but I don't feel like my, my initial opinion has changed that much in, okay. in retrospect. Yeah, I, I find it hard to not necessarily defend the narrative of Dark Souls, but it it really is, you know, about being in that world. And maybe it's a narrative designed for people who have already played through the game once or twice, and so they're looking to fill the gaps. But as first-time players, you know, you get to the end and you're like, oh, that was a fun boss fight against Gwyn. Okay, I guess we're done. But (laughs) there's no real weight of what happened at any point. No, uh, final bosses specifically in both Dark Souls 1 and Dark Souls 3, right? you fight either Gwyn or you fight like an incarnation of the the first flame itself. Yeah. Um, both very cool fights, but like you said, they're, they're, you know, again, just coming off of our Bloodborne episode, like there was weight to the final fight of Bloodborne. You understood what was going on to a degree, but you really didn't in Dark Souls 1 and 3. You really were just like, okay, the game is now is now ended and i think in a in a way that was much much it it didn't leave a sour taste in my mouth but it was not you know it was not the way that i wanted that game to conclude especially no. because neither one of those fights were particularly difficult compared to other fights in the game so well and i think dark souls 3 has an even bigger problem because i remember going into the fight against i, I don't remember what the name of the final boss the is the soul of cinder yeah the soul of cinder and fighting it and thinking, oh, you know, this is a pretty cool boss. I wonder what's next after this. And then the game ended. I was like, oh, I yep. guess that was the final boss. Where with Dark Souls 1, you at least know. Yeah. Right. You know that Gwyn is the end of your Hollow's tale. And you know that it's at least been building towards the confrontation with Gwyn. Yeah. I. I... Definitely, 100% agree. I I remember even specifically playing that, like, going to, you know, finish that fight and letting you know, like, oh, hey, I just beat it because, like, you had beaten the Soul of Cinder, and you were like, hey, don't touch the bonfire just yet. (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, why, what's up? And you're like, that's the end of the game. Uh, Oh, that that doesn't seem right. Um, Caught us flat-footed. It did, it did. So, all that being said, I think we're both on the same page that, like, Dark Souls 3 is is better than Dark Souls 1 in a lot of ways. Yeah. in most ways, in almost every way. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to to start talking about things, uh, and I, I wanted to talk about um, the world of Dark Souls 1 and 3, right? We've, we've alluded to a lot of things about how we feel about it, but I want to talk more specifically about the the difference between Dark Souls 1 and 3 and, and Bloodborne and Sekiro, and, and this is, in, in my view, and I, I know you said you might disagree with this a little bit, but I think there's something really interesting going on in the storytelling and the the world building and everything with Dark Souls 1 and 3 where the game exists in a a dying world or at the very least a world in a dying age so the whole game is kind of a you know again this journey that you go on this mm-hmm. 
this experience that your your hollow has the experience of the chosen undead is to some extent it feels like a a journey of futility right you are not looking to save a world on the brink of destruction you are looking to find an end to the story of this world and you know canonically i think most of us will end up like relighting the flame and kind of restarting this cycle yeah but the world itself is already gone and in a very real way right this is not you know you are not walking through a world populated with people who are trying to go about their life you are not you know mm-hmm. bloodborne style walking through a world of people trying to to hide and and live out the night so they can go about their lives again you know the only i think the only town like actual town area you go through in dark souls one is like the lower undeadburg which is full of empty houses because it's just been completely overtaken by demons yeah. Right? Like this, the world itself conveys such a sense of hopelessness everywhere you go, right? There's no respite from it. Even Firelink Shrine in Dark Souls 1, like your home base, the place where you exist in, and, and to some extent in Dark Souls 3, the slightly less, even that is not a home base, right? You are living and, and existing in the ruins of a broken empire. Like, the Firelink Shrine is destroyed, right? It is clearly mm-hmm. what used to be some sort of a watchtower. It used to be some sort of a holy place. And it is it is ruins. It is ruins with a capital R. There is fewer walls than there are people um, sometimes. Dark Souls 3 has still some of that. It is still a ruined area. Um, but Dark Souls 3, much more than Dark Souls 1, you know, when you go to fight the final boss there, when you go to, like, fight the soul of Cinder, the the vast open expanse that you fight him in is just again it is a literally a burned down ashen world there's yeah. like everything is dead in these games and i think that adds such a feeling of it, it takes away a feeling of importance to the journey you're on but in a really really impactful way it it makes it feel like you are doing this because you have to not like you are doing this because there is something to be done if that makes sense. Um, and it, 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 sitting with that more and more, again, I don't know how much of that I really felt during my playthrough <laughs> of the game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but the more I sit with that, the more I really appreciate this idea of, like, you know, stepping outside a, a lot of narratives and being like, hey, this, like, the story of this world is already over. Like, you are not here to be the hero of of Lodrin or whatever this world is called. I, I forget, but I think it's Lodrin. Um, like, you are just here to, you know, finish the epilogue of this story basically and i think that's really really powerful in a sense that i think a lot of games are are almost afraid to do um and i love that i don't know i love that uh, i think it is really cool but i think it's something that is not front and center in a lot of ways like you mentioned firelink being ruins and yeah there are more crumbled walls in firelink than there are people and firelink has almost all of the people in the world in it so yeah if you're looking for it you can notice that yeah this this is a world that has ended it is not ending it has ended but I also think that you do have to pay a little bit of attention to notice a lot of the more subtle details to really get the full effect of that. And maybe that's why, like you said, it's something that stands out quite a bit more in retrospect than it does from the moment-to-moment act of playing the game. Yeah, I wonder if we would have noticed it more if we were prepped for it, though, right? Like, 
Because I feel like I, I understood and existed and enjoyed the world of Bloodborne more than I did Dark Souls 1 and 3 initially during like yeah. the actual playthrough. But, I, you know, and I think I mentioned this in the Bloodborne episode, I was actively looking for environmental clues and monster and enemy design and boss design that like mm-hmm. led me to understand the world. And it's not like anything in Dark Souls 1 is hard to understand that that's what they're <laughs> saying, right? Like, you know, you fight Great Wolf Sif, who is this, like, wolf of legend that worked alongside this hero of legend, and you fight it in a graveyard, like, with just hundreds of graves there, right? Like, everything about this game expresses the fact that, like, whatever happened in this world already happened. Yeah. And I think that it's something that it, I I agree with you, but I don't think that that's necessarily a fault of the game. I think that's a fault of our expectations of the storytelling going into the game. Okay. I think Dark Souls 3 does it worse than Dark Souls 1, so to be <laughs> fair, that, that's definitely part of it. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I think that that's more prominent than I gave it credit for at first. And you mentioned that in contrast from Bloodborne that the world of Dark Souls is a dying or dead world, but I, for my money, I think Bloodborne is a world, you know, just one step removed from the end you know in the events of bloodborne you are trying to stave off the coming of some great ones and then the events of the blood moon take place and it is borderline the apocalypse so i think that there is some venn diagram overlap in terms of the state of decay of the world of dark souls and bloodborne it's not one to one but i could see how the world of bloodborne ends up like the world of dark souls before too long after the events of the game. I I completely agree, but I think that's why I love it, right? I think yeah. that key is what's so different is like, again, I feel like in Dark Souls, you're playing the epilogue, and I mm-hmm. feel like in Bloodborne, you're playing the climax. Like, okay, yeah, that's, I buy that's that. So, but that's so interesting how these games are inherently in conversation with each other in that way. Um, and in contrast to Sekiro, where you're playing, like, you know, uh, the build-up to everything, right? And, mm-hmm. and that, Sekiro's also just, like, a world where you meet people, and people are living, and things make sense. And that, so <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll talk about that later. But, um, I don't know, I think, I think the world-building just does so much heavy lifting to keep that game feeling fresh in my mind, in a way that most games just don't get that opportunity whatsoever. And I think the DLC for both Dark Souls 1 and 3 really emphasizes that dead world state. I think they both did a really good job of that, particularly the, um, uh, what's the name of the second DLC in Dark Souls 3? The, uh, the Ring City? The Ring City, I think, does a fantastic job of showing you the dead state of the world. Yeah, uh, it it really, really does. Uh, in contrast to Ashes of Ariando, which is the first DLC <laughs> in Dark Souls 3, which does a great job of showing you what happens if you just shove Dark Souls mechanics into a poorly designed DLC. Yeah. Um, but I, I, do, I do like that. It, you kind of get, like, you get different sort of things from the DLCs from Dark Souls 1 and 3, right? Because um, Dark Souls 1, God, I don't remember the name of the DLC that takes you to, like, Ulysseel. Um Doesn't matter. There's only one DLC for Dark Souls 1, so everybody knows what I'm talking about. But it's like, it Dark Souls 3 DLC, like you said, it, it shows you, it emphasizes that idea of the broken world because you're still, like, existing in kind of the same world, right? Like, it's mm-hmm. 
the connection there you are going through this bonfire that existed at the end of 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 the game or at least that's how we got there i think there's actually another way to get there but i think you have to go through the first dlc which we weren't going to do um but dark souls one the dlc is like hey here is the other side of things right here is this weird sequestered area that like has a lot of these people you know and has been corrupted by this force but like also it's this like vibrant in a world like alive place and i think it it does a but it, you know again you get that like you don't walk to that area you don't right. exist well, in that area in the same world it's a different world entirely you are going back in time in the dlc to see the world of dark souls before the ending mm-hmm. but also wicked corrupted by everything because you do find <laughs> yeah. corrupted artorias yeah. um so i don't know man i it's Dark Souls is one of those games where I'm like, I don't have too much to say about it. And then I talk about it and I'm like, God, this everything about this fucking rules. It's so cool. And don't worry, it, it's it, gonna be a short episode though. It's also it's so strongly emphasized by the world design in Dark Souls One, where, you know, all all of that is to say, the world is so deeply, deeply interconnected. And when I say world design of Dark Souls One, I, I strictly am talking about map design right now. Yeah. Because it's something that I feel like they just abandoned in every other FromSoft game for the most part. Um, but Dark Souls 1, like, you you exist on this, you know, largely vertical world that is completely connected. Like, mm-hmm. and you and I had this experience. This is one of my favorite experiences of, of us playing together, of being like, hey, I think we have to go to X location. Yeah. How do we get there? What is the quickest way to get there? And then we would just talk through, like, oh, well, we could take a shortcut from here to here, and then we could take an elevator down to this area, which would allow us to run across so that we could get to that area the quickest. And, like, that felt so cool. Like, obviously, this is all before you get the ability to fast travel in the game, but it feels so cool. And, And I think the ability to fast travel, it needs to come when it does come in the first Dark Souls because it forces you to figure out these paths and these optimal routes to get to different areas so that you know Lordaeron like the back of your hand by the time you do get fast travel. Whereas in Dark Souls 3, you know, you you have it pretty early on. And like you say, the the world design is just inferior in Dark Souls 3. In Dark yeah. Souls 1, all roads lead back to Firelink eventually. Yeah, and I, I mean, you know, you mentioned you get you get fast travel earlier, right? And, and in Dark Souls One, it it helps you feel the size of the world when you're not using these shortcuts anymore. In Dark Souls Three, literally, you get to the Firelink Bonfire, and it's like, okay, to start the game, now you're gonna have to fast travel to somewhere where you don't understand the connection to Bonfire or to Firelink anymore, and like it so immediately draws you out of the world. Like, yeah. I still think, again, the world design is, like, cool, and they do some cool things, but, like, it, it's wild how much I feel like I don't understand how the world connects in Dark Souls 3. I don't understand how this piece is connected to this piece. I don't understand, like, where I am in proportion to everything else. Mm-hmm. And it's wild how much, in Dark Souls 1, there is not a location you can mention that I cannot think vertically where it exists in relation to other places. Or obviously horizontally, but mostly I know the vertical pretty well. Um, <laughs> and like that, that is just there are there are few, if any, games that make me feel like I'm inhabiting an, a place that it was designed, like I'm inhabiting a world as opposed to a set of levels 
And I really, really, really wish they had stuck to that a little bit more in in Dark Souls three and and Bloodborne in a in a way that they didn't. Obviously, you know, other games do this and other games world design makes sense and open world games have like this connection, but like in a different way that just doesn't feel Yeah, there's as something connected. There's something special about the connectedness of Dark Souls. And I think, you know, maybe not entirely, but a portion of that is the world is so incredibly hostile and anything can kill you at any point, be it the stupid undead who's throwing daggers at you right outside of Firelink or the traps around Sen's fortress or Mm -hmm. the actual bosses themselves. You know, when you make progress exploring, it feels like real progress because it can be taken away from you just like that. And in other games where the difficulty is not as severe and exploring doesn't come with these myriad of hazards, well, okay, it's cool that you can go from point A to point B to point C and then back to point A, but it doesn't have the same weight as, you know, pulling that lever and finding that shortcut that gets you back to Firelink and now all of a sudden you're home safe again. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Um, and I think the the verticality of the world helps but i think the more than that is the thing that you were talking about the like the interconnectedness the way that you can again like you said pull a lever and find that now you're here or or even pull a lever and find that now you're on an elevator that goes to somewhere else that you now know where you are um i you know i was trying to think while i was talking while you were talking like well what does make this world feel more connected than something like a you know, something like a, a Horizon Zero Dawn or Breath of mm-hmm. the Wild or something where, like, it's, you know, it is, that's how the world is, right? Like, the world's <laughs> biomes connected to each other. Um, and I think part of it is just, it's the way that it feels like Dark Souls 1, the map is authored such that it couldn't exist any other way, right? Like, if I think about the different biomes and I think about the different pieces in other open world games, and this isn't an open world game, but you know what I mean. Yeah, worlds, games that have that like large worlds that are all connected, I could basically shuffle them around in any given combination, and it would still work. It would still be a a game. But with Dark Souls, every like every single path leads somewhere that it has to lead for the game to make sense, right? Yeah, yeah. That's an exaggeration because some of them lead to like a tree trunk that goes nowhere. (laughs) But um, it, it just it. I don't know. I feel like we spent a lot of time talking, like more time than we should have talking about this, but I also feel like the world design of Dark Souls 1 is the thing that makes it hold up in the eyes of every other game in the FromSoft franchise, right? Because like we said, yeah. every other game plays better than Dark Souls 1 at this point, except for maybe Dark Souls 2 and Demon's Souls. We didn't play enough Dark Souls 2 to know. We never played Demon's Souls. But right. like, everything else plays better than it, but nothing else comes close to the world design for me. And when I think back on Dark Souls 1, there are a few bosses that I remember, there's a couple particular locations, but the thing that really stands out to me is the feeling of interconnectedness of the world. The feeling of thinking, okay, well, I just got to On Orlando, but I understand how it is connected to Firelink and Sen's Fortress, and I know now when I'm hunting down these great lords, I know where I need to go, and I can see it on the horizon. Just how everything ties together is such a thing of beauty in Dark Souls 1. That none of the other games reach that pinnacle. They don't. 
It, which is a shame. It it is it is my genuine and true greatest disappointment. Every FromSoft game we play that it's not structured the same way. Yeah, um, but I don't know that this trick continues to work. Uh, tr- trick is trivializing it because I don't think it's a trick. I think it's a masterclass in design. But I don't know that that continues to feel as special if they keep doing it in different games. So. Yeah, yeah. Um. We should move on from just talking about the map of <laughs> Dark Souls 1 to Probably. talking about anything else. Um, so, so generally, um, I'm, I'm curious how you like this aesthetic in general, though, right? Not the, not the dying world necessarily, mm-hmm. not the interconnected world, not the whatever. Just this, like, dark gothic, like, magic touch sort of world. Like, do you... Do you does that aesthetic work for you, generally speaking? Does it only work for you in this atmosphere, like, compared to other FromSoft titles that we've played? How do you feel about that? Like, is there so, anything that works for you or doesn't there? So for me, the general dark gothic aesthetic works pretty well, but it is not anything special or anything to write home about, right? You could name half a dozen different examples in games or in fiction that have a similar setting. But I think it works in the Dark Souls series because it gives you a nice base or jumping off point for having cool bosses, for having the Iron Giant, for having a couple different dragons, for having the bell gargoyles. And when you go into the underworld, you know, it's a setting that gives you the freedom to see all of these different things. So it works in that respect. But I think that's kind of where it stops working for me. In contrast, the world of Bloodborne, I just constantly wanted to inhabit that world, and I wanted to explore more, and I wanted to just be there, because I found it so much more interesting than the dark gothic of Dark Souls, which, you know, it's fun to be in, but I don't want to turn over every little rock and pebble and smack every wall to see if anything is behind it, the way that I did in Bloodborne. Yeah, yeah, I I think that's a pretty good summation of it um i reserve my right to change my opinion when elden ring eventually comes out but i, I <laughs> if it, it just, comes out yeah, yeah don't 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 i need something <laughs> <laughs> I, I think generally yeah like it's just that the style's been done a lot yeah um, and specifically i mean in games right because victorian england has also been done to death right well victorian england with uh, yeah the cosmic horror aspect makes it a bit more novel but like that style's been done a lot but i feel like you don't see that nearly as much in games and i feel like dark gothic is just like the (laughs) The default one yeah Yeah. like hey if i want to make a fantasy game how do i make it appeal to more people and how do i make it appeal to like teenagers like ah i know let's make it edgy (laughs) and dark and it's like okay well cool um but i do like like you said, I think it, it it is a really good jumping off point for the type of thing that they want to highlight. So I think it's it's not I, I think it was a smart choice. I think I will be really sad if they continue to make games with that same aesthetic though, because it is just so played out that it's really hard to surprise me there. Yeah. Um especially because so much of it is similar in in the tone of what those particular areas are going for in dark souls one and dark souls three there's like not really a a break from that aesthetic it, no you know there are obviously like there are swamp areas and there are oh lava my god areas. stop it with the poison swamps nobody <laughs> likes that oh my god 
worst they, part it, of any of the FromSoft games. Exclusively bad, um, right? But but there are different things, but they're all like, they're all still kind of dark Alex, right? Like it is. Yeah. Like, oh, this is like a lava area. But it's like kind of a crumbling ruined lava area. It's, it's pretty mm, dark gothic. Like, filled oh, with fiery song. gargoyles and yeah. skeletons everywhere. And it's like, okay. 100%. It's cool, but it would be nice to see something different. Yeah, I I agree 100% with that one. Um, So let's move on because I said short episode and we're at like 45 minutes now. Yeah. So let's talk about, let's talk about, um. Do you want to move on and talk maybe about some more mechanical things? Talk about some bosses, some NPCs, how we feel about that sort of stuff? Sure. Um, I will say that for NPCs, uh, similar to my feeling uh, in Bloodborne, is that they exist and there are some interesting stories that they can tell. But for the most part, they're just kind of window dressing. There if are fucking... Come yeah. to Lair of Ostora like that. I swear to God, if your Look, ass doesn't praise right the now, sun praise the and sun. all that, that's great, but... You want to come at the cat that talks in riddles? Do, does <laughs> any of that actually matter? Like, no, Do any of these NPCs so have a story that you care about at all? Or is it just a way to get a different, a different covenant or unlock a new merchant? So here's, here's what I'll say. No, but okay. <laughs> I do. So I don't. I feel. First off, Sigmire of Katarina, the Onion Knight. I did actually care about his story in Dark Souls One. I was, you know, him and Solaire. I was, I was fairly invested in their well-being because they pop up, and it's easy to gravitate toward them because no one else exists. In the <laughs> because world. they are the closest thing approximating an actual character, but they are yeah. not three D. They're barely two D. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. That's fair. Um, but the thing I will say is, is I do think the characters in Dark Souls Three, the NPCs in Dark Souls Three, were more fleshed out. Uh, even if not like, like you said, they're not full characters, right? They're not like I couldn't tell you a lot of their traits or anything like that. But mm-hmm. I feel like I do remember, right? I remember, you know, how I felt finding Yol of Londor, the like, you know, weird mage turtleback guy that you find creeping over who's then talking about how he failed his task and he's trying to help you and i remember feeling like a little bit sad when his quest ends in him dying uh, yeah I, I remember you know obviously the blacksmith exists throughout all of them and he's great but there's not like you know a story he's a blacksmith yeah yeah and he's like he's got some good some good lines <laughs> but but that's really about it um i don't know there's there's like there are some characters who have a little bit of flavor associated with them that I liked. The I'm forgetting the name of the priestess in Dark Souls Three that you can you can get, and she's like blind and has a defender that is supposed to be protecting her, but isn't in Dark Souls Three. Um, yeah, yeah. Arena, Arena of Karim. I mm-hmm. I remember that. I didn't look it up. I believe you. <laughs> um, like those characters felt again. They didn't feel like they were main characters because the story of this world already happened, but they did feel yeah. like they were, you know, they kind of felt like what they were. They felt like players that were left behind after the story finished, and what you were getting was that out of them. You weren't getting, you know, their grand story. You were getting them trying to exist and understand their place in this world still, and I think that's cool. Like, I, I liked those NPCs a lot. Um, but 
they're not like great characters. I would grant you that yeah. they're not great characters. I, I think um, what you said makes a lot of sense because while they're you know, you're not going to get characters fleshed out to the level of The Last of Us in Dark Souls, because Dark Souls is not about characters. It's about this dead world and you exploring it. So mm-hmm. it doesn't make sense to have characters that have ten minutes of exposition telling you about their backstory and why they picked up a sword and shield instead of magic. Yeah, that that does make a lot of sense. But... Contrasting it with Bloodborne, I think there are some characters in Bloodborne, you know, Father Gascon, who, even though he is a, you know, he's not a huge part of the story, the way his quest ties together, it feels like he has more emotional weight than pretty much anybody in either of the Dark Souls for me. I mean, he doesn't even get dialogue. (laughs) (laughs) Come on. Yeah, but his, I, I... His... you Okay. To be fair, I liked this quest line in Bloodborne. I did yeah. quite a bit. But the only reason his quest feels like it has emotional weight is because everybody dies. Like, if, if his daughters didn't die, he would feel nothing for that character, other uh, than he's a hard boss. You're right, but I'm not going to say it out loud. You don't... <laughs> <laughs> Contrast that with Sigvert of Katarina who will jump down with no regard for his own life to help you fight a giant flaming demon and then share his that signature part was cool. with you. That I mean, part that's, was pretty cool. That's a fucking NPC. Move over, Joel from The Last of Us. That's nothing. <laughs> Chloe from Life is Strange? I don't fucking know. It's all about Sigvert of Katarina. Um, I think the NPCs fit well within the world that they have created. Maybe yeah. I was a little overly harsh in my first statement. It's also extremely exciting whenever you meet a new NPC, I feel like. <laughs> yeah, because there's like a dozen of them per game. Yeah, and you have no idea whether or not their quest is going to end up being anything, and you know for a fact you're going to fuck up. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, let, let's, talk about, let's talk about mechanical differences and then lead that into bosses. Um, because I do want to know, because um, I kind of go back and forth on this, how do you feel about, A, the mechanical differences between these two games, I don't mm-hmm. think that's a pretty short conversation, honestly. Yeah, they're uh, they're the same game. <laughs> they're the same One game, has blue Estus flasks. Um, and, and also just, like, generally how you feel about this style of gameplay. Because we can contrast it with Bloodborne, where Bloodborne is very much like a, hey, quick, like, quick move in, parry everything, try mm-hmm. to attack as quickly as possible, be super aggressive, get your health back, right? Whereas, like, that is kind of just one of the builds in Dark Souls. But yeah. it is not every build in Dark Souls, right? You can be just an immovable tank. Uh, and I think that, like, the ability to kind of choose one of those two makes some of the boss fights really interesting because you can tell that some of them were, like, some of them were definitely designed in a way that makes them a whole lot easier if you choose to go one direction versus the other. Yep. Um, and I think that that's really interesting. And what's, like, did you find yourself preferring one of these modes versus the other? Do you find yourself like interested in trying them out, like different different playthroughs, different equipment, anything like that? So I think that's a way that I still want to interact with these games is trying out different builds in subsequent playthroughs because the way I played Dark Souls is I got a halberd and I got a big shield. And I tried not to get fat rolls, but I got up to the point where, you know, one more tenth of a point of weight and I would have fat rolls. And that felt right to me. It felt like a good balance of 
having some range with my offense, having enough defense that I could just hoist the shield and take a hit, but also still having a nice amount of mobility. And for Dark Souls 3, swap out the halberd with a nice big sword, and I played pretty much the exact same game. (laughs) I never interacted with magic. I didn't do sneaky two swords or anything really ranged. And, you know, maybe that's more a failing on my part as a player, because I'm sure those other systems and other ways to play are a lot of fun. I just, I found something that I liked, and I stuck with it. And I think the game does not make it easy to halfway through decide, you know what, I want a completely different build. I want to go from a total tank that has maxed out weight to a magic user who's only wearing a robe. I don't think it really gives you a good way to do that unless you're on, you know, your 10th or 20th playthrough and you know exactly how everything is going to go. Yeah, I I, I agree. I, I do sort of... I run up against that, right? Because I don't know, like, I my instinct is to agree with that because I did the exact same thing you did and was yeah. like, well, I can't even imagine playing this game any other way. But mm-hmm. I also, like, didn't really try that much to ever play it a different way. So it's, I mean, it's possible that maybe halfway through Dark Souls 3 we could have been like, I don't like this stupid icy sword anymore. I want to <laughs> do this. I mean, it, it would have been really hard to spec into, like, magic or something like that. Yeah. But I think it would have been definitely possible to be like, oh, I want to use a different style of weapon, or I want to I go for, like, a two-handed weapon build instead, or I want to do this or that. Um, but... For me, it's not just about you have the required materials to bring a weapon up to spec that you haven't been using. It's also that so much of the game is finding your rhythm and knowing Mm -hmm. what your windows are to be offensive and when you have to back off. And when you swap weapons or builds, all of a sudden, okay, your range is cut in half, but your damage and speed are doubled. But that takes some significant amount of time to invest to achieve the same level of proficiency. And I think that's, you know, kind of a bummer in terms of I'm never going to try out the myriad of different playstyles, but I think that also speaks to how well the game mechanics are designed, that there is that incredible level of depth for each and every available playstyle. Yeah. Uh, I There we go. <laughs> I muted my computer audio, so I was no longer getting the <laughs> feedback from me talking, which was weird. The Dark Souls of podcasting. <laughs> God. Um... I, I, yeah, I I agree. I I think that I I I want to disagree. <laughs> I do. I want to disagree because I want to be like, ah, hey, but here's like, here's why we were wrong, and it was the way that we played the game that was wrong. But then I also remember us being like switching to a different weapon of the same style inside of the same like requirements and like using. Oh well, I'm still getting used to this weapon as an excuse for dying for like. <laughs> eight hours after switching. I've only spent 30 hours with this weapon. I need more time. Yeah, basically. So I, I, I do I do agree that there is a lot of that there. And, and I, I think there is a lot of really interesting depth there that you, you, you alluded to. I am very curious about magic builds in these games because I've never even begun to mess with the magic build. So yeah. I don't know. Like that, I can't imagine it's as interesting, but maybe it is. I don't like I mean I don't really even know how they work at all because I've just I have interacted with that facet of the game so infrequently. Yeah. 
I don't know. That's it, it would be super interesting. And I do think the the game allows you and, and encourages you to do stuff like that. And I think the community has been really good about picking up different ways to to engage with an experience of the game, right? Like I wouldn't do this because I'm not a masochist, but there's a, you know, <laughs> there's a Dark Souls randomizer that exists that randomizes every enemy and boss oh, in the man. game. Oh man, that's so, like, wild. That seems really cool to just be like that's an end like that is an end game enemy right outside of Firelink Shrine that I just have to run past and like, hey, this first boss that I fought was fucking Seat the Scaleless, and that's impossible. What the fuck? Yeah. Uh, but it also randomizes every weapon, so you can't be like, oh, I'm going to go pick up the halberd or the Y-hander because I know where it is. Mm-hmm. You just be like, oh, hey, this is the weapon I got. I might not find another good weapon that I like for the rest of the game. So you just <laughs> sort of have to, have to roll with it. And I think that's like, it's a really interesting, cool way that the community has, has kind of come together to reinvigorate life into these games Um, yeah yeah god it'd be hard to go back to dark souls 1 after dark souls 3 though it just feels so much better it really would be and that's not to say that dark souls 1 feels badly by any stretch it's just that dark souls 3 is such a refinement on almost every aspect of the mechanics I agree, unless we're wrong. I haven't played Dark Souls 1 in a long time, and I <laughs> actually feel like trash now. Yeah, that's know. fair. That's fair. Uh, do you want to talk about bosses a little bit? Yeah, let's talk about bosses, because I think we're getting getting pretty close to the close here, because we're at about an hour already. Um, yeah. But, but I want to talk about... I mean, first off, I want to get, like, top two and bottom two bosses from both games, I think. Um, okay. So... Just because they're... There's, there's so many, and DLC is included, which is DLC unfair, included, okay. Because well. that's like most of the good bosses in every Dark Souls game are in the DLC. Um, so most of the best bosses. So well, for start me, with Dark Souls one, because I think that's the that's that's an easier one. Yeah, for me, top two, it's got to be Artorius and Ornstein and Smo. Artorius yeah, from right. the DLC, and Ornstein and Smo is maybe like if somebody asks me what is the most Dark Souls boss, I'm going to say Ornstein and Smo because each one, there are two enemies. One's a giant with a hammer, and the other is this dragoon knight with, I think he's got a lance. But you mm-hmm. fight them at the same time. So, you know, you don't have, you can't beat one while the other sits in a corner and then he says, oh, now you have to fight me. You are fighting them both simultaneously and have to juggle that. and each one individually is pretty tough. So the pairing of them together just feels like, oh god, I'm really going to have to get good to actually be able to beat this. And it's just the quintessential Dark Souls feeling when you beat them. Yeah. And then Artorius, because he is one of the few characters in the lore that you really have a connection to. You fight Great Grey Wolf Sif, who is his dog. And that feels really bad to beat Sif. God, that fight sucks shit. That fight right? might be in my bottom two only because of the way the wolf limps at the end before you kill it. And how You're like, it okay, maybe this is where I stop playing this game because of how <laughs> painful it is to move past it. Yeah, it's uh, real fucking rough. But the fight against Corrupted Artorius is also just mechanically really fun. So those are my top two. Bottom two, it's gotta be Bad of Chaos, has to be the bottom because it's, I mean... Almost all of the bosses and all of the FromSoft games are amazingly designed. 
But honestly, I could design a better bed of chaos than what's in the actual <laughs> game right now. It's just so fucking it's bad. So it's so bad. And then also in maybe the design, moonlight, like the visual design's not even cool. It's it, like kind of a tree thing that sort of has an arm, but also it's yeah. got a heart. But none of that's like clear or very. It's like the it's like the Dark Souls three tree boss. Its name I'm forgetting. The curse rotted greatwood. It's like right. the curse rotted greatwood, but if it like was worse, a lot worse. And Curse Rotten Greatwood's not great. <laughs> it, it's not great, but also the floor falls out in Bed of Chaos, so you have to do platforming in a game yeah, that no, is any, absolutely not suited for it. No, platforming in any Souls game is dog shit. Yeah, yeah. And then other bottom, probably the Moonlight Butterfly, because it was just so very forgettable. Yeah, I I agree. Moonlight Butterfly wasn't great, but I would not consider it near the bottom, right? I, I think with the top two, you pretty much got it, right? Like, Ornstein's Mo is maybe the best fight in that game, and like you said, Artorius is the only fight that has, like, weight to yeah. it, because you know what you're doing, right? Um, I think, like, special shout-out to Gravelord Nito, because he's got just the coolest design of any boss in that game. Like, he looks so fucking cool. But it's just like not a hard fight. <laughs> like I mean, a, maybe maybe you had a little bit more ease with it than I did. I, I thought right. it was a little challenging. And it the was, environment you fight him in is pretty cool because of how dark it is. Yeah, I mean, it, everything about that fight is cool except for the fight itself. I think. Yeah, um, which is disappointing. Um, but I would I would agree that Bed of Chaos just sucks. And I like I wish I wish I wish I could come with you on that Moonlight Butterfly ride. But it fucking has to be the Bell Gargoyles. It has to be the <laughs> Bell Gargoyles because I'm not kidding when I say I almost quit Dark Souls Wait, from the Bell Gargoyles. Bell Gargoyles worse than Manus? Yeah, because I was at least fucking... Manus was the last thing I had to do in the fucking game. <laughs> the Bell Gargoyles almost made me never play a FromSoft game again. I probably died, no fucking joke, 30 times to those goddamn Gargoyles. And you beat them on, like, your fourth try. Oh, so man. every time I opened my mouth, and you were like, well, have you? And I was like, shut the fuck up. You're a horrible person. I never want to speak to you again. I'm going to go die to a gargoyle. I, I think I was muted for half the time you were fighting them, too, because it was you like, had to be. I, I don't want to make things worse because so much of this when you're in the later, you know, once you've died 15 times is a mental game where can you pull yourself out of that funk and... You know, I thought the Bell of Gargoyles weren't too bad, so what am I going to do? Am I going to say, oh, well, you got to try to separate them, Alex. Be careful. It's like, fuck off. Just, I got to go get a beer or something and give you an hour to beat them. Uh, and I'm sure, I'm sure they're not really that hard. I bet I'm not, I bet I'm in the minority with having that difficult of a time with them. But for some reason, my brain just, it fucking, it could not click. And <laughs> I did, uh Oh, I wanted. I was so mad. I was so mad that whole time. I can um, confirm that. Yeah. Dark Souls three though. Dark Why Souls three. Why don't you 3, go first? The problem is Dark Souls three. Like I'll choose the the ones I like the least because I think that's way fucking easier. But like I'm looking at this list of bosses. It's almost exclusively really good bosses. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like Yorm the Giant sucked. Yorm the Giant was a really 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 cool fight. That had a mechanic that just kind of took all the weight out of it. Um, because yeah, that's the one that's did. like, hey, you can't really win this fight without doing this weird thing with the sword that you would charge up. And it's like, okay, but I wanted to fight him from real. Right. It was just kind of like the thing. enforced cheese almost. Yeah, it sucked. Um, I 
so that's like that's definitely my bottom. Everyone else was pretty fucking good. Yeah, like, like even I, if some of them were very hard, they were still fun fights. Yeah, I mean, I guess Crystal Sage because I didn't really understand anything about. Like, I mean, I understood that it was a fight, but it wasn't like interesting. Maybe okay, so maybe uh, if we're counting DLC, then Half Light Spear of the Church because that was the one where it would yeah. like, bring in other players, and that shit sucked. It was yeah. like, hey, but the real enemy is a different player. And I was like, I don't want it to be, though. That's not fun. And I think the idea of that is really cool, but either the execution was not particularly well done, or it's just not something that you can execute well on. Because if you're bringing in other players to act as the boss, well then, okay, maybe I get somebody who's super easy and I think it's, you know, the most blow-off boss in the entire series. Or maybe I get a string of a dozen players who have spent hundreds of hours in this game. Yeah. And I'm just getting frustrated and it doesn't feel like I can improve. Or maybe they didn't find anybody in a reasonable time frame and now I'm fighting an NPC that's trying to pretend to be a person. And then yeah. it just feels like I didn't deserve the win anyway. Like... As, as I think it, the design did not work the way they wanted it to. No. Um, I'm going to need some time for favorite bosses, so give me your two least favorite. Well, I'll, I'll definitely say uh, the Half-Light Spear of the Church is also in my mm. bottom, because I just... I, I think they... Good. Yeah, they outkicked their coverage in terms of what they could actually implement in the Especially game. Especially just... It's especially bad in contrast to every other boss fight in the Ring City DLC. Because yeah. the rest of them are like... They're great. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, they're really good. Um, I, honestly, I'm looking at the list of bosses too. And, you know, with Dark Souls 1, I could easily think of two who are in the bottom. And I could think of more than two. But looking at the list of bosses for Dark Souls 3, I want to say Sister Fride just because... I had a uh, Bell Gargoyles issue with her where she's got three different forms. First you fight her, then you fight her, and I think it's her father? Yeah. The king at Frida the same time? Father Ariando? Yeah. He, something like that, yeah. And then the third form, she absorbs his power and you fight her again. And I, it took me, you know, two dozen tries to beat her first form. And then, oh, well, there's a second form where you fight two characters. Oh, great. Well, I, that's still cool. I like the design of that, and the bosses themselves are interesting. And then after banging my head against a wall for an hour or two hours, finally beat Form 2 and thought, oh, yes, there there we go. I can do it. And then there's a third form. It's like, god damn it, I just want to move on. But once I beat them, you know, retrospectively, that was a really cool boss fight, and having three forms, it made it tough as hell, but that's why I come to these games. So, yeah, in I, hindsight, I, I like the Sister Free Day fight. I was going to say, if you were to put that in your bottom, honestly, if you put that in your bottom ten, I would be appalled. <laughs> that's in my top three, probably. Yeah, so uh, I don't think I have another boss that I think belongs on the same tier as Half-Light or you know, the the bad ones from Dark Souls 1. Yeah, of, I, there's no I, bed of chaos in Dark Souls 3. No, again, Crystal Sage, not great. Curse Rod and Greatwood, not amazing, but I think the design's really cool. Deacons yeah. of the Deep, it's fine. It's yeah. Like, it's kind of cool. It's fine. Yorm sucks a little bit. Uh, but, 
none of those are like offensively bad or anything right. like that. Right. Um, in terms of top ones, though, that's much harder because it, it's like it seven. Is. Of, uh, okay. Special shout out to Champion Gundir because I don't know how to not roll backwards. So I had another <laughs> situation where I was like, this boss is horrible and I want him to get hit by a truck in real life. Yep. Um, but was also a really, really fucking cool fight. So I understood that as it was going, even if I was extremely mad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, mean, I think gun to my head, though, I would probably say Slave Knight Gale, who is the final boss of the Ring City DLC, is maybe my favorite fight in that game. And then, like, it's pretty close between Sister Friday and Pontiff Sullivan, I think. Because Pontiff Sullivan was such a cool fight. He's like, again, I don't understand. Like, I didn't understand lore-wise where he fit into everything. But it didn't matter because he had, like, a sword that was on fire and a sword that was blue. And that was cool. And, like, (laughs) I, I really think if, like... I think I tend towards in games like this really enjoying fights that feel more level, I guess. Like, I, I mm-hmm. like the giant beast fights, but I also really like the fights that are just like, that's just another dude with swords, and, like, we're just going to duke it out. And, like, it's a big dude with two swords and magic, but, like, it's just another dude with swords. I can do this. Uh, and that, yeah. felt, that felt really cool. So that... That's pretty high up there. I also really like the Abyss Watchers for some reason, but not not as much as those other two. So but I, I think those would be my two. So I think I, I have to agree with Slave Knight Gale, because he was such a great cl- uh, culmination to Dark Souls 3, because we'd beaten everything else the game had to offer, and he, w- he struck the perfect balance of difficulty but it's a fun environment to fight him in there's not a lot of bullshit to get hung up on and it's a big area and it is the actual you know everything is destroyed you are in the apocalypse so Mm. it's it very fitting for the world itself but also he's just fun to fight he's a good balance of challenging but fair in a way that Mm. i think is you know they nailed it yeah, uh, for hundred percent. He feels. Re- I will say, Slave Knight Gale is the enemy in all of Dark Souls that feels the best to dodge his attack because yeah. you get in such a pattern of dodging his attack that you feel like you fucking mastered some shit. Yes, yes. And Pontiff Sylvain was pretty fantastic, but Nameless King was a really good fight too. But I don't think it can make the top two just because the first form. <laughs> is so big you know you're this king or you're fighting a king riding on a dragon but the mechanics of locking on to the dragon Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. not quite up to snuff unfortunately the camera angles do ruin nameless king for me yeah yeah so i think you know he's a good fight but you know the mechanics aren't quite there aldrich devourer of the gods i liked him a lot but i thought i honestly thought he was a little too easy I wanted him For to somebody be somebody who devours God. Yeah, like yeah, <laughs> I, I beat him in the first five tries, I think. Which you know we didn't one shot him, but I went into that fight with certain expectations about how difficult it should be based on what the game had told me about this upcoming boss, and kind of breezed through it, which I think yeah. took a lot took a took a lot of the wind out of his sails. Totally understand. Uh, High Lord Wolnir, while not a particularly fun fight, is 
I thought was really cool just in terms of the scale of this boss and the environment you fight him in. He's a giant skeleton, but you also fight him in this total, almost completely dark area. So you don't really know how big he is, and then all of a sudden you've got this forearm that's much, much larger than your character model slamming down near you, and that, that was a really cool fight for that reason. Yeah. So what, what, what's your pick, then? What, what are you talking <sighs> I mean... I, well, we can go down the whole list and say why every single fight was cool, but yeah. I need to know what your top two are. I need to know who's, who's standing Slave next Night to Slave Gale Night. Slave and... <sighs> there was Dark Eater Madeir, the cool dragon you can fight, kind of, if you choose to, before Slave so Night Gale. So I, I think Dark Eater Madeir is cool, but also there was a dragon in Dark Souls 1. That's... Okay, but not as cool. <laughs> no, sure, not as cool, but... Madeir doesn't... It's gotta be Pontiff Solvane, I think. Yeah. It's a cool fucking fight. It's, it's cool really fight. cool. It's really... Oh, though Dragon Slayer armor, fighting him on that bridge, oh, that was pretty cool. Not not top two, though. It's gotta no. be uh, Slave Knight and Pontiff Solvane. Yeah. It's, uh, it's just the right choices. The yeah. problem is, it's just the right... It's not a matter of taste. It's just the right choices. Um, <laughs> I could accept Sister Frida being in the top two. I think that fight was so fucking cool. Um, and we struggled a lot with it, like you said, mm -hmm. but I, we were also like 20 levels under the recommended level or something. Yeah, so. but even though we struggled a lot, I struggled a lot more than you. So it, it takes it down a couple pegs for me, just the... Uh, balance of difficulty to frustration yeah. you know, maybe just me as a player i wasn't where i needed to be but i i was getting a little heated in that fight completely understand um i think think unless you have anything else you want to chat about that's probably going to do it um i think we did a pretty good job of covering it i mean yeah. we we played the same games with very similar builds at the same time so not you know. a wealth of <laughs> different, <laughs> yeah. different uh, emotions and and thoughts coming out of there, but you know, hey, I think sometimes that's just what happens. Um, again, we didn't we didn't talk about Dark Souls two. We didn't play Dark Souls two. We played like a couple hours of it and stopped. Um, I I think you had mentioned wanting to talk about why we bounced off of it, but like the reality is, I don't have a good reason. We also uh, bounced off Dark either. Souls three like two hours after that. So yeah. You know, I think we were just maybe Dark Souls out at that point. Um, I would like to go back. I, I know typically it's seen as the worst of the Dark Souls genres, but I, you know, I don't think even people being like, hey, this is the worst Dark Souls game is still pretty high praise. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I would like to check it out at some point. Once we get our hands on Demon Souls, we'll we'll be able to have that experience. And once we've done that, I think we kind of have to play Dark Souls 2 just to finish off the Soulsborne canon. Oh, yeah, uh, 100%, but that'll be whenever PlayStation 5s are back in stock, which will be, I don't know, six or seven months or years, so, who knows. Sony, if you want to send us some uh, PS5s on the house so we can put up an episode on Demon Souls, I we would can't, be okay with we that. We can't pander to Sony because we still have to low-key pander to Heelys until Duncan and I get a free Healy sponsorship, but then once once that comes through, we can start pandering to Sony, I promise. I mean, I think you can put feelers out in multiple directions. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Look, it's gonna weaken. It's gonna weaken our case with Heelys, and we're okay. locked in. All right. I don't we're want any in. Heelys. Just send me two PS5, Sony. Then we're that good. Seems, we'll that call seems it wildly even. unfair. That seems wildly unfair to everybody else. <laughs> uh, 
But I think that is going to do it. Like I said, we will be back to talk about Sekiro. Um, I don't know if it'll just be us or if somebody else will be joining us. We haven't quite locked that down yet, but we will be back um, to to kind of finish off that discussion so we get a, a well-rounded look at that. Um, stay tuned. We have some. We have a, another episode coming out in not too terribly long that I don't want to talk about the details of yet because I don't know the specifics of, but we're pretty excited about. Um, I don't ever do the closing, so it's weird. Um, <laughs> if you want, you can reach out to us via email if you have any suggestions about games to play, if you have anything you wanted to mention, any feedback, anything like that. That is thoughtsfromplayer1 at gmail.com. That's one spelled out O-N-E. You can follow us on Twitter at, at thoughtsfromp1, and that will be the numeral one. You can check out our Twitch account. That is Thoughts from Player One on Twitch. We've been streaming through both Dark or <laughs> fucking <not> Dark Souls. <laughs> We've been streaming through both Dangan Rompa, uh, the first one, Trigger Happy Havoc, as well as the other game that is not Dark Souls. Darkest Hulk. Dungeon. Darkest Dungeon. Thank you. We have been playing through that as well. Um, usually we stream on like you know, either Tuesday or Friday, uh, but come check it out. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, you can check out the VODs for our Ropa streams on YouTube. That's youtube.com slash thoughtsfromplayer1. Um, I think that pretty much does it. If you want to go ahead and review us on whatever app you are using that lets you leave reviews, we would appreciate that. Uh, other than that, uh, did you have anything else you wanted to mention? I think that everybody should go and watch your streams because I have had a lot of fun with them, and I am not even being paid to say that. I appreciate that. None of us are being paid for any of this. We are all actively losing money. <laughs> <laughs> but with no further ado, I've never done this before, so I don't know. I'm, I'm going to try to capture the energy here, but we are going to throw to another fact from the unstumpable Michael... I don't know how I feel about that one. That's Duncan's thing. I don't feel good about it. Anyway, here's a fact. Everybody enjoy. Since Duncan isn't here, it's once again up to me to hashtag save the podcast. If you skip the whole episode just to get to this part, can't say I blame you. So without further ado, Michael here with your plant fact of the day. If you ever wanted to start your own garden, you probably know that most plants start off as seeds, the product of pollination. But did you know that some plants don't produce seeds to reproduce? Some plants, such as ferns, reproduce in a similar manner to mushrooms. They make spores. Spores are different from seeds in the sense that they are haploid, meaning they only carry one copy of DNA rather than two, and don't come from the joining of male and female genetic information. You can find sacs of these spores in rows on the underside of fern leaves in structures called a sorus. Then they form a whole new organism and produce male and female gametes in a life cycle known as an alternation of generations. That's your plant fact for the day. Thanks for listening. Tune in to the next episode of Thoughts from Player One for more video game discussions and plant facts. <laughs>